take our Bibles, if you would now, and open them to the book of Galatians chapter 1. And we counted a great privilege to be able to come back to our study here tonight in the book of Galatians. As you know, I favor good, solid studies of God's Word. And one of the things that I really like to do is just to understand these important, essential, fundamental doctrines of the faith. And what we have here in Galatians is the most fundamental of all doctrines, uh, the doctrine of salvation and how that we are justified by Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when I use that word alone, I actually use it in two ways. First of all, we are justified by Christ alone in the sense he's the only one who can justify us. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one path to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Our happiness in heaven, our ability to even get there in the fellowship with the Father is because of Jesus Christ alone. And then also we use the word alone there to say that we're justified uh, by Christ, not by uh, any works that we do. We have learned in our study of 1 John, we just finished that up a few weeks ago, we learned there that our view of Christ is very critical. Uh, We must understand what the Bible says about Christ. We must believe what it says and not mold him into some kind of little God that we can twist and manipulate to our liking. Because if we do that, we're guilty of uh, of idolatry and we're guilty of worshiping a false Christ. But that second meaning uh, tells us that we are justified in Christ alone, that he is the one who has done all the work for us. We are not justified for any meritorious cause, for anything that's found in us. We're justified only because of the work that Christ did. And what we do is that we receive the, the merits of Christ's life, of his righteousness, and of his death by placing our faith in him. And so that means, again, we are justified by faith through Christ alone. And that's one of the driving themes that we find here in the book of Galatians. And it is the central thought in the verses that we're going to read tonight. And so I find that we have here some really powerful doctrine that's packed into these five verses, Uh, just a strong statement by the Apostle Paul. And what I would encourage you to do is really pay close attention uh, to our studies in these particular verses, and of course all throughout this. Uh, I don't want you to get lost in this, and I don't want you to settle with an attitude. I just can't understand that. That's just too much for me. Don't be content to get into that kind of an attitude. Ask questions. If you have something you don't understand, pass that question along to me, and and I'd be happy, more than happy, to discuss that and help bring you to proper understanding of God's Word. Now, as we look at our text then tonight, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 6, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If you compare the letter to the Galatians to 
others of Paul's letters, you'll find that uh, just immediately there's something different about this. I mean, there's just an abruptness here as the Apostle Paul begins. There's the lack of the easy transition that he usually has from commendation of the people that he writes to and then transitioning into the problems that he wants to address. And we would expect by this point, as we come down to verse number 6 in this letter, that Paul would have his commendation for the people, and we would see that smooth transition, and then would come the purpose of his writing as he starts to correct the problem that he sees in this church. Now, I want you to notice something about the way that Paul does this. Uh, If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have here a good example of the way that Paul usually begins his letters to the churches. And Paul follows the normal convention of writing letters in that time. Uh, After the salutation of the letter, there would usually come a section of gratitude, and even Gentiles would do that with their letters. And then they would include something about praise to their gods, And, of course, the Apostle Paul, and following that, would give praise to the one and only true God. But we look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 4. Paul states his name in verses 1 through 3, and then he says to whom he's writing. And then in verse number 4, he gives thanks to God, and then he commends these people. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful by whom you were called under the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm sure you're aware that the Corinthian church had many problems. This was a very immature church, and that immaturity led them into immorality. There was confusion over certain doctrines of the faith. They were confused about the, uh, the uh, immortality, about what happens when you die, about uh, the resurrection and all those things, and we find that out in the 15th chapter. And so they had a lot of problems. And yet we find Paul, as he begins 1 Corinthians, that he commends these people and he thanks God for them. And then when he's done doing that, that's when he begins to address the problems in the church. And you find that very same type of beginning of thanksgiving and commendation in the beginning of almost all of Paul's letters. You'll notice that when you read Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Ephesians 1, 15, Philippians 1, 3, and Colossians 1, 3, and so on. But when we come to Galatians, we have a different attitude in Paul here. It's different because Paul is very seriously bothered by the problem in this church. And it's a far greater problem than what the Corinthians had. It's far greater than problems of Christian living and trying to straighten out those kinds of things. It was worse than what they had wrong about the Lord's Supper that we read about in the 11th chapter, and they were seriously messed up about that. But Paul is very concerned as he begins this letter to the Galatians because the most fundamental of all of the doctrines of God's word has been attacked, and that is the gospel of grace. And so Paul immediately raises the objection to this, and he speaks very strong language, and we see that in verses, especially verses um, 8 and 9. Now, I want to begin uh, then this message with our first point this evening, which is the consternation of the apostle. My wife is 
always accusing me of picking out the biggest words that I can find that nobody knows. But I don't purposely do that, and I hope that you don't have trouble with this one. But the word consternation, it simply means the alarm or the dismay. And here it applies to fear that arises because of danger. And there certainly is danger here, and the danger is the corruption of the gospel of Christ. And there's nothing that's more serious than this. If you corrupt the gospel of Christ, if you have a false gospel, that's the most dangerous thing that could ever happen. It's dangerous to the soul because you have to believe the truth about Christ. You have to believe the gospel, uh, the right gospel, or else you'll die and you'll go to hell. And so it's far better that you would lose your physical life, that you would be in some kind of peril or danger for physical life than it is to have something spiritually go wrong. You see, if you're a believer and you lose your physical life, then you really haven't lost anything. Also, Paul tells us that when we die, we immediately go into the presence of God. And so he says, "That's that's not loss, that's gain. But if you lose your life not knowing Christ then Scripture says you're going to be plunged immediately into the blackness of hell. You see, Paul could bear with the Corinthians for a while in their troubles. Uh, He could spend a little time trying to get them back on track and talk to them about holy and righteous living and try to get them where they're supposed to be. He could be patient with them and kind of guide them along. But what he can't be patient with is what he finds right here. He cannot be patient when the gospel of Christ is being undermined. I mean, here we have a strike at the very root of Christianity. The main supporting pillar of our faith is attacked here. And if you lose the gospel of grace, then you have destroyed it all. You don't have anything left. There are no doctrines that matter once you destroy the doctrines of grace. Now, later on, we're going to talk about the teachers of false doctrine and why we have to be ready at an instant to defend our faith. And what we see in the world today, I think, is there's far too much latitude uh, uh, for people that don't teach the truth. And people are accepted into the fold of Christianity when they don't teach the truth of the gospel. And so I, I don't think that for sake of unity or for peace among the Christian community that we just sit idly by while people teach a false doctrine. Now, you'll notice then Paul's consternation here, the alarm that he has, the dismay over this, as we look at verse number 6. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now, that's what I would call Paul's incredulity. Now, stay with me for a minute. We're getting a vocabulary lesson along with some theology here tonight. But incredulity simply means his disbelief in what's happened. His disbelief that they've now begun to follow a work salvation and this doctrine has just so quickly infiltrated the church. Again, we're talking about something that is a core issue here. And so he's amazed by this. He just marvels at it. And he's thinking, how can you possibly do this? You know, it's sort of like what Jesus said to Philip. He said, have I been so long time with you and still you don't know me, Philip? You know, Philip had asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father. And Jesus just sort of looked at him and said, you mean you still don't get this? You've been around all this time and you don't get this? And you know, that's the way a pastor feels sometimes. You can preach and you can preach and you can preach about something. You try to tell people what they do, what they should do and how they ought to live. You try to give them the doctrines of God's word. And then you find out that people are acting just like you never said anything at all. Like it all just skimmed right over their head and they didn't hear anything. 
And I was talking to someone the other day and I was speaking about this and I said the Holy Spirit convicts people through the preaching of God's word. And if people go on and do the same things over and over and over again with impunity and they're not convicted by the preaching of the word and they, they're not, they don't feel like they need to turn around and do what's right, there's no conviction, there's no correction, they hear the word of God but they don't do anything about it. I said, that's not a salvation problem. I mean, that's not a sanctification problem. That is a salvation problem. You see, what happens when you hear the word of God preached and, and, and the preacher tells you what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to straighten up. And if you don't do that, then your sanctification is not in question. I believe your salvation is in question. Because when people hear the word of God, they change Well, Paul's incredulity here is even worse than what I would have when you don't listen to me because this is a very serious offense. And then we might take note of this as well that we have to consider to whom Paul is writing. They're Galatians. Remember what we said about them a few weeks ago? Some of them are Gauls and it was kind of kind of a characteristic of these type of people that they were people of quick actions they were people that were very sharp they had very sharp minds but they are also very impressionable people and they were they were somewhat unstable in their ways and they're always looking for some sort of a change and so when Paul came along and he started preaching the gospel of grace, they believed that. They believed the right doctrine. They knew it in their hearts that they'd been justified by faith alone. But then someone came along and started teaching something different and they saw something different and it's new. And what they did was they just swallowed up the doctrine. They got confused about it. Paul addressed this very same problem with the Ephesian church when he said to them that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You see, here's what we need. We need to be settled in our doctrine. We need to know exactly where we stand. You see, you need to know the background of your faith. You need to know what we believe and why we believe it. That's why we dig these things out. It's why we go into the Word of God and we study verse by verse. It's because you need to know the truth and you need to know the reason why it's the truth. And if you don't know that, then somebody's going to come along and throw a monkey wrench into your squishy theological position and you're going to be messed up. You're going to get thrown off the track. And that's what happened to these people. They're impressionable. And so they were prone to confusion. Secondly, we would note about this, Paul's indignation, his indignation. And it's, it is important for us to note here that he's not actually angry with these people. I mean, he's not saying these things because what they really need is a good tongue lashing and he's going to tell them something they're never going to forget. Now, you see, Paul very much understood Satan's attacks. He knew the way that Satan works. He knows that sheep are vulnerable And if you don't have a diligent shepherd that's around with him all the time, then the sheep can fall prey very quickly to the wolves. So he's not actually angry with them. And I suppose in one sense that he can excuse their error. And I want you to hear me out on this because I don't want you to misunderstand it. But he can excuse it because he knows that he's away from them. He knows the way that Satan attacks. He can't be there to defend them right away. You see, the problem is there are Jews that were following Paul around everywhere that he went, and as soon as he would leave one place, they were there to try to undermine those evangelistic efforts. 
And so these Judaizers, they were just waiting for Paul to leave, and then they would come and they would work their way into the church. And so his indignation is not against true believers in the church. And as we'll see in just a minute, these people were true believers. His indignation is not against them. It's against the Judaizers. It's against those who pervert the gospel of grace. But his amazement in this is just how quickly that this took place. I mean, it didn't take very long. They were right then in the process of changing positions, and it happened quickly. And so he says, I marvel that you're so soon removed. So it happens quickly. Satan's not involved in this long, drawn-out process trying to get them away from their faith in Christ. The change was happening rapidly. And this is why the Apostle Paul comes with this immediate response. He gets right into the problem. And that's because Paul has to act as quickly to head off this problem as Satan was to create it. And so the words of commendation, those are things that can wait. This has to be settled first. And the way that Paul handles this, we can see the urgency of it. And it just adds to the sense that we have to have that very same readiness to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know something else about it? Paul knows God. Paul knows God's people, and he was confident this issue would be resolved. He knows what the Holy Spirit could do with his people. And so in the fifth chapter, in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. So he was confident that he would, they would come to the right position, And those that had perverted the gospel of Christ and were troubling them, they would come into judgment for their deceitful activities. Now we notice then that Paul says in the next, what he says in the next phrase, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. From him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now I want to talk to you next about the call of the gospel. Now, what we don't want to do is to rush too quickly through these verses because if we do, we're going to uh, overlook some very, very good theological points. These people were called into the grace of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that they're called? Well, we're going to hold on to that thought for just a moment and we're going to consider here just a few minutes about what it means to be called by the gospel. You see, there are two ways that people are called by the gospel. And that's very important for you to recognize because there are many people that deny these two ways. Many people say there's only one way that people are called by the gospel. But I think the Bible is very clear about this, that there are actually two calls. And if you don't get this right, you're not going to understand how God works in bringing a lost sinner to him. Now, first of all, the first call of the gospel is the external call, the external call of the gospel. And the external call is when I choose a text of scripture and I begin to preach to you about salvation, I preach a message about what Christ has done and I explain to you what the gospel is and in that message I invite sinners to come to Christ. When I do that, that is an external call. And everyone that's in the congregation, you hear the same things, you hear in the same way, If you're paying attention, you're going to hear the same message, you'll hear the same scriptures, and you'll hear the same explanations. That's when we broadcast the gospel to everybody. I want you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to study the 
parallel passage to this in Matthew in just a few weeks. So I'm not going to go in great detail here. But you're going to hear, uh, you'll hear some of the same things then later on when we go to Matthew that you'll hear now. But this is the parable of the sower. And Jesus tells this beginning in verse number 5 of Luke 8. He says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now in verses 5 through 7, we find an example of three different types of people that hear the gospel. Now it's evident that what Jesus is talking about, the sowing of the seed, he's speaking about the preaching of the gospel. Because there he says, or here he says, the seed is the word of God. And the different soils that are there is the way in which people hear the word of God. It actually refers to that person's heart. Now, in the first three instances, Jesus gives us an example here of how the seed is sown. The gospel goes out, but it doesn't produce repentance and faith in the heart of the hearers. And that's what happens with the external call of the gospel. And to put it to you simply, the external call of the gospel is not enough by itself to produce repentance and faith in the hearer. And we, we, we experience this all the time because we preach the gospel. We, we speak to hundreds of people, no telling how many, even thousands of people have come through the doors of this church. They hear the same gospel, but not all of them believe. Only a few people believe. Now, all of them are alike. All of them have received the external call, but the external call is not enough to get results. Now, this is where there are some people who say, well, that's all you need. What you do is you preach the gospel, and nothing happens beyond that point. Because here is where people hear the gospel, and then it's up to them to make a decision about what they've heard. And so they believe it, or they don't believe it. Now, there are a lot of theological implications to that they don't have time to go into tonight to tell you why it's not true but the least not the least of those is the natural condition of a person's heart and we discussed that a few weeks ago in the gospel of Matthew so the external call goes out to all of these people that hear it and they are present there for the preaching of the word of God the external call goes out but there's nothing that happens 
Now you'll notice verse number 8 in Luke chapter 8. Jesus says, And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And he explains that in verse number 15. But that on the good ground meaning the seed that's sown into the good ground, are they which with an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. Now here then is the difference between the first three cases that we just talked about and the last case found in verses 8 and 15. These are people that have received a different call. These are people that have received the internal call of the gospel. Now notice verse number 15 says that these are people with an honest and good heart. Now let me ask you, is there, is there anybody that has an honest and good heart? Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful. He said it's desperately wicked. He says the heart's no good. So who can these people be that have a good heart? And you'll notice, again, the heart is compared to soil, to good ground. And so this means that the ground was good before the seed ever got to it. Now that presents a problem, doesn't it? If the heart is evil, and here we have good soil before the seed ever gets there, how do you explain that? The soil is the heart, and this is a soil that's already ready to receive the gospel of Christ. And so that seed, the gospel, falls into that good soil and the plant shoots up and it thrives and it produces fruit. And that is the same thing as the internal call of the gospel. And what it means is that the Holy Spirit has prepared the heart already to receive the word of God. And then when the seed of the gospel touches that prepared soil, that person then comes to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, here's the thing about the internal call of the gospel. It always achieves its intended result. And that's why we say the internal call of the gospel is irresistible. Now, there you have one of the five doctrines of grace, the irresistible call of the gospel. That's the internal call. And this call is absolutely essential for the salvation of lost sinners. See, the external call, the outside call, external, is not enough. But then when the Holy Spirit comes and he issues the internal call, he issues it to a heart that's already been prepared to receive the gospel, and then that person hears and he comes to Christ. And there's a lot of scripture on this, much on the outward and the inward calls, but still there are people that are very confused about this. And this is why that they say, well, there is no irresistible call of the gospel. The grace of Christ can be resisted. But what they don't understand is that we're talking about two different calls. The outward call is often resisted. And we're never going to deny that. People hear the gospel and they resist it all the time. But when the outward call is accompanied by the inward call, this is when the Holy Spirit has saving designs on that person. And it means that when that person hears the preaching of the gospel, they will come to Christ. Now, there's a lot of places that we could go to read about that. We could go to Romans chapter uh, 8 and read verses 29 and 30. You know those. We could read those 10 more times. We've read them many, many times. But instead of going there, why don't we just go to a place where there's a practical demonstration of this very important truth? Let's see it in action. Well, to see it in action, you go to Acts chapter 16 and verse number 14. 
And here it says, A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now you see what Luke says? He says she heard us. There's the outward call. Paul's preaching to all of these people there. He gives the outward call. They all hear the very same gospel. But then Luke goes on and he says, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now the second part of that is the inward call of the gospel. And that's when the Lord opens up the heart and that's when the gospel is believed. Now, friends, this is a marvelous truth from God's word. This is one that I don't want to give up because you know what it tells me? It tells me that my salvation is not founded in my ability to make good decisions. My salvation is not founded in my intellect. It's not in my reasoning powers. When I know what my heart is like, when I know the condition of my heart, I don't want God to say to me, well, it's up to you. You just make the decision. I'm going to trust you that you could make the right decision. I don't want any part of that. I want to believe that God says, I've taken care of this for you. I've taken care of it for you. What I've done is I've taken that stony, hard heart from you, and I've given you a heart that's capable of receiving the truth of the gospel. I've given you a heart by my Holy Spirit that enables you to believe in me. And do you know what that means? It means that salvation is all of God, that all of it depends on him. And if you can't see this, if this is what what Paul is so adamant to get across here, then you've missed the purpose of Galatians. What we don't do here is just stop on the surface of this and say, well, what we have is just a simple grace versus work salvation. Now, we have to go further. We have to investigate this, and we have to discover what grace salvation really is. What does that mean, grace salvation? Well, it means salvation that is accomplished by the work of God alone in every single area. God does it all. Now, going back to the text in Galatians, we take our thoughts off pause here now. And Paul says, God has called you into the grace of Christ. So what is he speaking of there? Well, he's talking about the inward call. This is the effectual call. And how do we know that? We know it because it says they are in the grace of Christ. Now, if they weren't saved, I think Paul would have said so. They are saved, but the problem here is they're mixed up. And that happens. People can get mixed up. We'll talk some more about that in the next part of the message next week. But these are people that are in the process of moving to a false gospel. But what I'm telling you is that this movement will never be complete. And that's because one who has truly been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ can never fall away from that belief. And the reason that they can't is because it's the design of grace. It's God's design in saving people to glorify us in Christ. So what does he mean when he says you are removed from the true gospel into a false gospel? Well, John Gill answers this question better than I possibly could. So let me just read to you what he says. He says, the difficulty is how such persons can be said to be removed from God who has thus called them to partake of the grace in Christ. 
They are not, nor can they, be removed from the everlasting and unchangeable love of God to them in Christ, of which their calling is a fruit, effect, and evidence, nor from their covenant interest in him, which is immovable and inviolable, nor from a state of justification in which they openly are, who in the effectual calling have passed from death to life, and so shall never enter into condemnation." nor from the family and household of God in which they are. No, nor from the grace of calling which they are called by God and which has eternal salvation inseparably connected with it. But this must be understood doctrinally of their removal from the gospel of Christ, though not of a total and final one. It is observed by some that the word used is in the present tense and shows they are not gone off from the gospel, but were upon going, so that the apostle had some hopes, yea, confidence of their being restored, Galatians 5.10. And besides, though they are such as truly called by grace, cannot be finally and totally deceived by false prophets and false teachers, Yet they may be greatly unhinged by them, and they may fall from some degree of steadfastness in the doctrine of faith, which is the case of these Galatians. Now you'll notice, I hope, as I was reading that, that Gill mentions what he calls the effectual call. And that is the very same thing as we were talking about a moment ago, the internal call. Now, that's known by different names, but we use internal, he uses effectual, it's the very same thing. And he calls up here the very clear teachings of Scripture that we can never come into condemnation once we have believed in Christ, once we have received this internal call that moves us from death into life, we pass from death into life, we can never change back from that. And so these are people that are in the process of turning, but the turning's never going to be, be complete if they are first true believers in Christ. Now, what we're getting here is some really good, solid doctrine. And I hope I'm clear enough to you so I didn't lose you as I went along. And the brief summary of what we've learned here tonight is what's usually considered to be the fourth point of the doctrines of grace. And this is the irresistible, effectual call of the Holy Spirit to salvation. And what it means is the grace of God alone operating on the heart of a sinner and bringing him to faith in Christ. God changes the heart. You can't change it. You can't do anything with your heart. God has to change it. And if God changes the heart through that internal call, then what do you think is going to happen? Nothing less than the salvation of the sinner. That's what's going to happen. Now, what you do is you just stand back and you look at that and you think, thank God for this amazing grace. You know, we sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You don't know the half of what grace is like until you start getting into things like this and see how God took it all upon himself. He did it all for us. Never left a single iota of the smallest thing left to us. He does it all. So this is what we do. We praise God for his marvelous, infinite grace in saving us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson that we have tonight. What a, what a wonderful book. What great truths are brought out here. And Lord, we don't want to rush over this. We want to see the doctrines that are taught here and consider the implications of what we've just read. So Lord, I pray that you'd give all of us understanding of your word. Help me to say things clearly so that people can understand it. 
And Lord, we just want to thank you every single day for your marvelous grace in saving us and sending Jesus Christ into the world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, and we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, please, as we sing.